Hello everyone, I'm Frederick Eishin. I write the Necker Substack, and this is my conversation with Josh Wolf of Lux Capital. So this conversation was originally recorded for Compound, that's with Compound.com, and we recorded it in the summer of 2022. So the conversation about macro is maybe a tiny bit dated, but overall it's uh, fascinating um, to get into a thought process, and I don't think you're losing anything at all by the fact that uh, I'm releasing the audio a few months later. So you can go straight there and find a full transcript and show notes if you're interested. I'll link to it from the Substack. But I also wanted to share the audio because I just, well, I really enjoyed the conversation with Josh. He's fascinating. We talked about everything from macro and going through large cycles to bootstrapping Lux and kind of starting it as a kind of a research firm and, and hustling to get the first the first fund raised. Um, and then, of course, things like his his ability to network and connect people across disciplines, the culture they have at Lux, um, how to evaluate founders, and uh, more practical things like how to become a better storyteller and writer, personal finance, work-life balance, just just a bunch of stuff that uh, after listening to, to Josh and a bunch of podcasts and meeting him, these were kind of the things that were still stuck in my mind. Like, oh my God, I'd love to dig uh, deeper into this. So I hope you enjoy the conversation with that. Let's go. I want to start off with with macro, if you don't mind, right? Last year, you wrote in your letter about an excess in excess. Now it's in tropic apex, and you're so good at coining these terms. So, um, but I always wonder, like, why does your venture capitalist, right? Like, why do you spend so much time or mental time on on macro? Like, and and how do you how do you approach it? Right? There's a lot of people who's like, I just want to do bottom up. I don't want to care about the cycle. Maybe it's not predictable. So I'm curious how. How you think about it? What's what's predictable? What's not predictable? And and how you integrate it into your into your process? I would say three things. One is being intellectually competitive. I think that the vast majority of other venture investors who primarily are focused on the quality of the entrepreneur or technology or cement market, which are the main three risks that most people are focused on, are not focused on. So it should give us an advantage if we are. The second thing is sort of like the mantra of the Department of Defense and specifically DARPA, their mission is to create and prevent strategic surprise. And so for a variety of personal psychological reasons, I don't like being surprised. I don't like being negatively surprised. I suppose I like positive surprises. And so I have this analogy where if you think about the process of investing as a venture investor, and if you were to say that it really is security selection or entrepreneur selection, which is maybe the most micro level. The analogy that I've used is like picking the best dish on a menu, having picked the best menu, let's say there were multiple menus in a restaurant, mm -hmm. having picked the best restaurant in a neighborhood, having picked the best neighborhood in a city, having picked the best city amongst all available options in the best state and country and so on. And you're about to now eat that delicious morsel of food, having made that bottoms up selection. And then Godzilla comes and just steps on the city and crushes <laughs> you. And so ignorance of the macro is no virtue. Mm -hmm. it, it doesn't mean that we're looking at currency rates and the cost of capital in third world countries and indebtedness in China relative to Denmark. But, but it does mean that we are broadly trying to get a feel, a palpable sense for what massive currents are shaping the micro environment that people may not realize. And the easiest one, 
over the past two decades was just the cost of capital mm-hmm. um, artificially set by our own Politburo in the form of the Fed. But mm-hmm. internationally, just looking at the forces, be it foreign, Japan or China, bond buying, suppression of treasury yields, the purported risk-free rate, which as Jim Grant has called it, the um, you know uh, sort of rate-free risk um, for a long time, looking at you know up until recently sixteen and a half trillion of negative yielding debt, and the distortions that that had on being able to really value businesses, and looking at the flows of capital into assets, because the number one determinant of future returns is never the hockey stick curve that some consultant or bank puts out or some sell-side report shows or some optimistic entrepreneur shows. It's always how much capital is going into a sector when capital is abundant, it, the present, future returns are scarce. And when capital is scarce in the present, then future returns can be abundant if you're right. So that's why I care mm-hmm. about macro. Yeah, that makes sense. So you've, you've lived and worked through two cycles, right? Both the dot-com bust in, in 2008 and, and many of your contemporaries in, in techno have, have not. But I'm curious how you think about those. Like, are those, when you think about this cycle playing out, do you, do you jump to those recent reference points or do you think it's just everything's different? How, how I always try to be careful with analogies and we don't have that many, um, you know. Well, that- well, first of all, that's, that's very uh, kindly put to say, man, you're old, uh, <laughs> uh, having lived through two cycles. But uh, it's true there, that if you were under the age of 37 today, you were 15 years from the last cycle. You were 22 when you were graduating college and called, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten. 10. Um, and you really have not lived through an equity bubble burst. Uh, you know, I remember people were arguing with me on Twitter, like, no, we've seen a downturn in March of 2020 when right. equity prices dropped. And I'm like, that wasn't a downturn. That was a quick blip before you had massive fiscal and monetary intervention, you know, on epic historic proportions. Um, and arguably it was the right thing to do, but, um, we, we can maybe talk about, you know, where the fed maybe acted too late to correct that. And now maybe he is acting too harshly, um, in the hopes of Powell taking a mantle claim from Volcker and fighting inflation, but I think it's going to push us headlong into a much darker recession. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so yes, uh, you know, the, the cliches hold, right. If history doesn't repeat, it rhymes. What's the closest analogy that you can find? Uh, all new things come from combinations of old. And so we are learning primates. You look at what you personally, viscerally, emotionally experienced and how it shaped your risk appetite. And then, you know, depending on what people have read or been exposed to or the heroes that they've followed or studied. And so when when Lux was started, it was on the cusp of the dot-com boom and bust. And we had already had the disposition to say, we're going to focus on something else that other people weren't focused on. So instead of going after optical networking and dot-coms and web, you know, one or two, then it was, um, uh, you know, let's look at chemistry and physics and material science and all this crazy cutting edge stuff. But I do feel a palpable sense of younger people like I was then with a sense of ignorance when older people were like, this is crazy. This is insane. The younger people were like, you don't get it. This time is different, which are always those dangerous words. And so, so that has repeated, um, you had this bifurcation, you know, between like the NGMI is not going to make it in the crypto and the meme space right. and, you know, okay, boomers, right. was mm-hmm. like a quick retort. It, it does feel like, uh, the visceral memory of late 2000 
And if there's some analogy to that, now, now of course, rates then were, I think, four and a half percent, you know, um, so you know, we had a, a much less globally integrated economy. China was not as ascendant as it was. Uh, you didn't have the dominance of the tech players that were actually profitable and cash flow generating, you know, some of the things like you do today. So there, there are, of course, lots of differences. But the market sentiment similarities make me think that we're in Q3 of 2000, that you're going through Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's um, uh, or Kubler Ross's uh, five stages of grieving, of denial, mm-hmm. anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance, uh, which always invokes for me actually that quick montage in The Simpsons when he finds out that he's going to die, and you know it's like quickly goes through like denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. Well, the markets markets have to go through that uh, yeah. both individually as investors and then collectively, uh, as the old quote goes, you know people lose their mind, um, you know collectively, and then sort of regain it one by one. Uh, or go mad collectively and then regain about one by one. So, so I think that that has to happen. I, I would posit that what's probable is that the next five years see two years of range-bound markets, in part because people are burned and spurned and they just don't want to do it. They have grown tired of speculating. Speculating isn't working. You know, buy the F and dip, which did work for so many people for so long, isn't. And so there's a fatigue that shifts behavior to say, okay, I'm just going to sort of get out of the market, right? I've mm. lost money. I've lost the job. I've had to give up assets. Maybe I was levered. And so that's one piece of the behavior um, that some of the prior strategies that worked, momentum, algos that were looking at signals on momentum, which also were far more prevalent in recent years than they were 20 years ago, um, don't work anymore. And there's just a shift. There's a narrative shift from growth to value from and, and this happened in 2000, 2002 period where it went from eyeballs and these ridiculous non-financial, non-accounting, non-cash flow, uh, non-value derived entities, you know, basically narrative driven to uh, cash is king, path to profitability, these sort of, you know, uh, cliches. So what, what followed then was 2002 to 2007, you had five years of um, following range bound markets of long short stock pickers who were really getting celebrated and you saw the rise of very famous mm-hmm. short sellers who were betting against terminal zeros and you saw the rise of great business analysts um, who really understood what made a great business and were able to invest in the compounders you know mm-hmm. years towards the tail end of that you saw some of the most brilliant people you know at columbia business school and hbs and other people that were really pushing into the value investing program the most brilliant i thought investors and were, were value investors they were um, acolytes and students of Buffett on the one hand, but they also, you know, really understood things like ROIIC, return on incremental invested capital, and, and and the real drivers of business. That in turn parlayed into, you know, private equity, uh, which you know saw a huge boom, picking up some of the distressed assets on the one hand, and then just the um, you know mortgaging of many businesses. But uh, and then that ultimately led to you know the financial crisis, uh, and then when rates dropped, then we saw this decade long you know, push for growth and yield when there was none. Um, so anyway, so, so yes, I, I, I think we're late 2000 and probably see a 2002, 2007, like, you know, phenomenon that's sort of our, our guiding playbook at the moment. And we have three different strategies to attack that. Okay. Oh my God. There's so much to, okay. So much to, to pick up <laughs> on. <laughs> uh, all right. Let's start with one um, and and go through them in sequence. But you've talked about the origins of of Lux uh, a number of times, and right, it was a small fund. You had the research business. You were sort of trying to figure that out. I'm curious, 
you were basically bootstrapping the firm in a, in a very difficult environment. I'm curious, were there any moments where, um, where you felt, you know, were there any make or break moments in those, in those early years? Were there any times when you kind of had your conviction really tested about whether this could work or where you, where you were thinking about whether you should pivot? Like how, how did that really play out? So keep in mind that um, we are imperfect and unreliable narrators. And right. even though I attempt to be intellectually honest and try to have part of my identity be about this pursuit of truth and intellectual honesty, like I'm still human and fallible and vainglorious and ego-driven. And so, so some of my recollections are going to be imperfect. Um, and, and so even if I'm aware of that, like you still have to handicap it some more. Um, I have a chip on my shoulder. I like being right when other people are wrong. Everybody was going after dot-coms and we wanted to go after something different. And interestingly, the two areas that I was most fascinated by, I thought they were just cool. They were sort of on the cusp of science fiction, but they were real. They were credible people. I was in rooms where there were Nobel laureates on the one side, but like the sci-fi fringe freaks on the other. The two areas were AI, artificial intelligence, and nanotech. Mm -hmm. And nanotech had this total weird fringe group of people with like extropians and transhumanists and they were just bizarre. And I could tell that they were totally unscientific. But then you had like Rick Smalley, who won the Nobel Prize for discovering the carbon 60 uh, buckyball and, um, and ushering in this new material science revolution. And so that was an interesting period. Um, and it was a speculative one because nobody was really looking at that. We ended up writing a report to gain credibility and came up with mental frameworks, which is something that we've carried to this day. There's all kinds of sort of mental frameworks that we come up with when we're looking at a, at a space. And some of these I talk about very publicly, like the half-life mm -hmm. of technology intimacy, which, you know, I see this reduction in how distant computers are from our bodies. And that led us into an investment like Control Labs that we sold mm -hmm. to Facebook, which is a brain-machine interface. Um, there are directional arrows of progress that you're able to identify. And so, so we came up with these frameworks and we actually published them in a big report. The report was inspired by a guy, Chris Dupuy, who I've lost touch with over the years, but Chris was a Morgan Stanley analyst working for Mary Meeker. He wrote the internet report and had a dinner one night with him in a chance setting. He was like, you should, you know, I was talking about nanotech. He's like, you should write the nanotech report. And sure enough, we did. We sold it for 4,750 bucks a copy, you know, sold a few hundred of them. It helped keep our little business alive. And I got access and entree to all these famous CEOs and VCs and Vinod Kosla. Uh, was actually one of the first VCs to buy it. And I was like, okay, I'll sell it to you, but only if I can come and meet you. And so went out to mm. uh, Sand Hill Road and remember his office. I remember viscerally what it looked like, but it was like the first major like billionaire VC I met. And um, anyway, that, that, was, that was, you know, one, one piece. But along that path, we struggled to raise money. You know, people don't believe in you. We had so many conversations to this day, viscerally, Peter and I remember, where people were like, oh, you guys are so cute. You know, we're early 20s you should go back to business school or, you know, with these like very patronizing, condescending. And I always say that yeah. chips on shoulders put chips in pockets. And my chips come from other things related to uh, absence of my father and growing up in Coney Island, Brooklyn and being around scammers and being lied to and, and all kinds of things where I'm just skeptical in a positive way, cynical at times in a negative way. But um, anybody that doesn't believe in you, you know, either you let bring you down or it becomes fuel and fodder to get to the point where you are feeling, I'll show them. And, and so for us, that was a big thing. Um, and to this day, we like to say with entrepreneurs that we believe before others understand. Mm -hmm. Because there really is something powerful, just psychologically, of believing in somebody. And I remember when Bill Conway, Carlisle founder, invested with us and he believed in us. And maybe he was in a good mood, maybe he was just speculating. But for us, it was so meaningful. And, and psychologically, and I haven't really even shared this publicly, I would 
and, and some of this is an absence of my own father and looking for father figures in life, but I would be on a run on a treadmill and I'd be getting tired. And I would imagine some of these heroes like cheering me on, being like, you can do it, come on, you know? And so I, I sort of have like these ghost images of these individuals and Bill Conway was always one of them, you know, to, to sort of cheer me on. So, so Peter and I would find power and strength in the people that we could palpably feel betting against us or didn't think we were going to make it. And then feeling really motivated to prove correct the people who did. Um, but all along the way, you know, we were trying to gain credibility. We were young guys. I remember, you know, wearing the same suit and tie, like over and over, just to the point where it was fraying, um, you know, trying to act older and more serious. And, you know, over the years you get more confident and you can let all that stuff go and just be who you are because you feel like on the merits, people like your ideas or, or your values or your ethics. And, um, yeah, but, uh, uh, at almost every step of the way, there was somebody or some moment where we were running out of cash. You know, even our first fund, it was a pledge fund from Bill Conway. You know, we couldn't go out and raise money. Then when we went out and actually tried to raise the money, our structure was all screwed up. It was just, you know, not right for a venture fund. And then we tried to correct that. We tried to raise $100 million. We couldn't hit that target. We got 92.1. I remember every single pitch of that, right? I mean, today we're 4 billion under management and we have giant foundations and wonderful philanthropies that we manage money for. But I still remember the people that told me no for a $250,000 check or, or dragged me, you know, for six months doing diligence on like data that didn't even exist to tell us that they were writing a hundred K check or, you know, and, and that was a formative thing because it shaped the kind of people that we wanted to be in the future when we paid it forward. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, but, but, you need struggle, you know, and, and, and you need people that doubt you so that you can prove them wrong. Interesting. I love that. It almost seems like you kind of built this, you know, Marvel type universe with like the heroes on your side. And you also have, I don't want to call them villains, but certainly people that, um, that you want to prove wrong and in their skepticism. And I, I found this then, I think in 2009, you went to the, to the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting. And I was always struck by how you look for the, um, people to connect with, whether it's friends or mentors in all kinds of different areas, right? Whether it's science, you mentioned the, the value investors, people, even traders. Um, and I'm curious how, maybe now it's easier, but as you were younger, how did you go about this? Like finding finding mentors, reaching out to people, who did you, what, what kind of person did you look for? Like just because I feel like that's something we all, you know, certainly I I want to do more of, but then you feel like, oh, this person will never have time for me. And, and But when you talk about them, it almost always seems like you learned a lot in your life from people like Bill Conway or others who kind of stepped into your life and, and taught you and from areas outside of venture. So I'm curious how you think about assembling this, this kind of pantheon. I don't remember who gave me the advice, but I remember that. Um, so actually I do remember it was, um, it was a guy, Tom Kane, who was, it was, it was a friend, a former roommate. He's a money manager, a very smart guy in Chicago. And I remember I wanted to get in touch with some famous investor. And, and I was like, you'd be doing me the biggest favor if you could introduce me to him. And he was like, stop right there. Stop. And I was like, why? You know, I thought I insulted him, like making this ask, I crossed the line and he's like, do you believe in yourself and like what you're doing? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, do you think anybody else like knows what you know in this particular field? You know, whether it was nanotech or whatever. I'm like, like, no, I feel like I'm one of the best, you know? He's like, so who's doing who the favor? You're doing him the favor by giving. And, and so it was a little bit of a mindset switch, mm -hmm. even if it, even if you're, slightly deceiving yourself to get over that absence of confidence in the same way that when there's a task that you don't want to do, 
thinking about, you know, I get to do this, right? Because you could be dying tomorrow versus I have to do it. And so that was like a real confidence booster to be like, wait a second, uh, not in a sense of arrogance, but like, mm-hmm. I'm doing these people a favor by both showing interest in wanting to connect with them, but also because I have something of value. Um, I had an experience in a similar way that really shaped me and further that confidence in the kinds of stuff I was interested in, which was a chance meeting with um, Jim Watson. And I went to his house in um, the towers by the United Nations and we had tea and he had this amazing line, which was avoid boring people. Mm -hmm. It was admonition with this double entendre. And it was, you know, don't be around boring people because life will be less interesting when you're around ordinary, mediocre people. And avoid being boring to people, avoid boring people as a, as a verb mm-hmm. and be interesting. And so I think in everything I've done, I've tried to be interesting. I've tried to be interested in other people and I've tried to seek out people who are excellent. And I found that there are people that are just way better than you at way better than me at, at in everything we do. And so even with Peter Aber, my partner, like I admire, I respect, I trust Peter, but there are things that he is way better at than I am. And I admire that. And so I like being around people who are excellent. Like he is exceptional at understanding and reading a room and finding the social situations and being able to, you know, ameliorate when there's like um, dissonance between people and be sort of a peace broker and a diplomat. Mm -hmm. And I'm the opposite. I come into a room and I say (laughs) something stupid and like drop the bomb, you know, and the water shakes. And and, and so it's a good yin and yang. But, but whether I know the people or not, like, you know, like I remember reading the book, The Operator and just, you know, there's Mm. maybe, things to like mm-hmm. and things not to like, but like, I, I really admired David Geffen. You know, I just, mm-hmm. I, I thought he was ambitious sort of psychotically driven, very competitive. Mm-hmm. Um, I admired Buffett and Munger for the rationality. I admire the people who followed them and sort of added their own tinge to it. I admired elite athletes because of the intensity. And, and by the way, like I wouldn't want my kids to be these people, right? Like when you watch right. the documentaries or you watch their journey, like they're all so screwed up. Like they're not normal, but by definition, they're not normal. They're not average. They're outliers. But, you know, like I would never want my kid to be like a Tiger Woods or, or Jordan or Kobe or, uh, LeBron seems a little bit more balanced and centered, but, um, they're all psychotically competitive. They Mm -hmm. want to be the best in their field. They want to beat others. And then I think some of them have varying levels of like ethics that make them better people. Like Dwayne Reed, Dwayne Wade always seemed like like a good person, you know, he was, he was a very competitive guy, but, but seemed like a good person. And so I think those are the attributes that I like, because that's when I'm, you know, on my deathbed, I want to be surrounded by my kids who look at me and are, you know, and this is maybe like so selfish, but distraught with love and appreciation, you know, of like my absence, like they will really miss me because I've seen other people who have been buried where their kids like literally throw dirt on their grave and walk away. And, um, that, that would be the number one thing. And then the number two thing is just to be sort of celebrated and admired, which is this weird paradox, right? Because when you die, like you're not there to experience it. And so why should you really care? But, um, yeah. Ernst Becker would call it the immortality project. Um, yeah, you, you had this, it's a really interesting quote, just because we're talking about, um, I guess, interesting people. You said, some of the smartest, most creative people are not just borderline, but actually not sane, which kind of ties yes. into what you just talked about. And I wonder, and then 
the balancing factor is you right you you reference often your your childhood Coney Island right the the need to distinguish from the gen, the genuine moonshot moonshot from from the con. So I wonder you know tell me more about the kind of I guess insanity you actually look for when when you when you meet a founder and you know how do you what's how much is too much too insane you know like how do you how do you underwrite these people who would strike others as maybe just too much. Too so like the per- the perfectly sane person is middle of the pack. They, they, they don't want to stand out. And that to me is something like, even when I teach my children, it's like finding the balance between fitting in and standing out, between fitting in and standing out. And the crazy people stand out. They stand out because they act different. They speak different. They think different. And the best of them have either an internal confidence or something broken that is not regulating or correcting them to want to fit in, and they don't care. They're okay looking different, sounding different, speaking different, acting different. They're, and, and in some ways, they've been rewarded for it. Um, so like comedians, you know, like maybe they were mm. being silly and, you know, and like, you know, I think about um, Eddie Murphy, like in that opening scene of Raw, if people have seen it, like he's like doing silly jokes in front of the family or whatever. And so maybe he got the positive feedback and like it was mm. cool to stand out, right? To be the one right. guy on the stage when there's thousands of people watching you. But for other people, it was the feeling of being ostracized, right? Being yeah. a kid with a uh, handicap or a, a, a speech impediment or being a minority in a mostly white neighborhood or you know, being a, a nerd in a Friday Night Lights Texas town or wh- whatever it is, there's something that people are mo- motivated to or pushed to stand out. And so the best entrepreneurs that I've seen are people that are really comfortable thinking differently because they realize like, it's almost futile for me to try to fit in. It's almost like a waste of time to try to be like these other people. Like, I'm not going to do it. It's only going to make me unhappy or the forces that be or the status that quo or the popular kids. They're like, they're not going to let me in. So I'm going to go find my own way. I remember I must've been 17. I read a quote. Um, I think the book was called Shaving the Inside of Your Skull, which was probably some like hmm. psychedelic Zen, <laughs> like, you know, BS book or whatever. But there was a quote that just caught me uh, and it was a William Blake quote, which was, um, mm. I must create my own system or be enslaved by another man's. Yeah. And then I got into Blake and I just love that. And it was like, either you're going to be part of somebody else's game, part of somebody else's company, part of somebody yep. else's system of thought, or you're going to develop your own and other people will be attracted to that. Um, okay. So now you get to the point of the entrepreneur and how do you tell the difference between the totally crazy person that's like mm-hmm. over the edge, um, and and I don't mind if they're crazy as in like they're willing to take a risk or do something that somebody else might be tepid or fearful or afraid to to do. Um, I don't mind if they say the crazy thing. I don't mind if they have an ambition that borders on, um, you know, being this like magnanimous you know, delusion of grandeur. Um, I just want them to be honest. And so it's one thing if you believe that something might be possible. It's another thing, and this is the really hard thing to detect, is are they wittingly deceiving you? Okay. So it's one thing to believe like, you know, I'm convinced that we can create, uh, you know, a, a device to capture smell. And I meet a scientist and he's like, I'm absolutely convinced that this will exist in two years. Like I know, you know, like, like I know people say it's not possible, but I believe it's possible. And I, like, that's a very different kind of crazy where everybody else would be like, oh, that'll never work but they have the conviction and the confidence that it's going to work. It's different when somebody comes in and is like, 
I have a full body scanner out of Star Trek. And I think in two years, we'll be able to cure cancer. And like, you know, there's just, there's this palpable sense of skepticism that we have innately because I have a fear of being duped. I do not want somebody to come in and be smarter than me and have tricked me Mm -hmm. and gotten past the sort of goals, you know? Um, And so I have to find this balance between believing before others understand and not being duped. And so I have to spot the suckers, the liars, and the people who are intentionally, not, not the people who are just naively ambitious, but the people who are intentionally, wittingly knowing that they're defrauding. We had a guy come in from London years ago who was pitching some quantum computing thing. And I was absolutely convinced that this was like an outright fraud and he knew it. And we asked some really probing questions. It was one of the three or four meetings ever in my life where the guy knew that we were onto him and got up and was like, okay, I think we're done here and just left. Oh, wow. And, like and he knew the game was up and he's he like- He knew I'm- that we were on, <laughs> like that we were calling bullshit. And, and he was like, okay, I'm just like going to go on to my next mark, I guess. So that's, that's crazy. But, but, but the biggest problem is at the moment of inception or conception, especially if you are primed to believe, it is very hard to know whether somebody is naively ambitious or somebody is yeah. intentionally duplicitous and sort of wittingly trying to, to deceive you. And, and, that, and that's what our job is. But we're not buying businesses, you know, as they're fully funded or valued. You're buying them at the early stages. And so you run milestones. You know, how much money is going to accomplish what and what period of time is the simple test we have. And you put enough money in to turn over the next card, to use a poker analogy. Yeah. And then uh, you avoid this on cost bias because you're, now you're invested. What you're really investing to do is see that next card. And if this person is incompetent, if they haven't recruited well, if you see signs of um, you know, them being dishonest, you know, then you don't invest more. Okay. I, th- that's, I, I love this. I, I wanted to tie in something that you mentioned on a, I think it was a previous podcast where you talked about BUDS, right? The, the Navy SEAL training camp. And you said that it was not possible for people to predict who would make it through, but it was possible to predict who would drop out at some point. And I wonder if, is there a similar way to think about entrepreneurs where you can't really predict what's going to work or who's going to make it, but you can sort of find indicators of, um, you know, the opposite. Can you invert that? I have a little bit of a pet peeve here that I think is indicative, but it's not perfect. And so, you know, the story um, on the Navy SEAL piece real quick is that it's very hard to predict. Uh, and the former head of SOCOM Special Operations is a partner here, Tony Thomas, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, four-star general, incredible guy. It's very hard to predict who will um, make it through, but it's easier to predict who won't. And the people who won't are the people that come that are tatted up, look like really big, tough guys, super mm-hmm. macho, muscular. And oftentimes it's the skinnier, scrawnier, you know, more almost like a yoga physique or something like, but they, they have the mental toughness to be able to make it through. And so people might be signaling visually that they are tough mm-hmm. or strong, but internally or mentally, maybe they, they don't actually have it. And, and the very fact that they need to signal, you know, tattoos or, or being like it, it is sometimes counterindicative. Okay. So in the, in the entrepreneurial sense, my pet peeve is when somebody comes in and I'm like, you know, why do you want to do this? And they're like, I just want to change the world or I want to save the world. I'm just so cynical or skeptical about that, that the best entrepreneurs we see are the ones who are like, I am like so obsessed to prove other people wrong because they don't think that this is possible. And I'm absolutely certain it's possible. That to me feels honest. It feels petty, but it's real. Whereas when somebody's like, I just want to change the world, like every second we're changing the world. You know, I just, I, I just, <laughs> it feels, yeah. it feels dishonest. So, so that to me is like, I, I have found that the best entrepreneurs are just psychotically obsessed with some hard technical problem, science, engineering, 
and they feel like they've discovered something and they see the prize at the end of the rainbow that uh, with a little bit of money or time or more talent, like they will get the status and the fame and the claim on having done the thing. And that to me feels like a much more honest, you know, social primate human pursuit than the signaling, you know, virtuously of, I just want to save the world. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I, I'm curious. So I feel like there's a little bit of a dichotomy where, right, Lux targets matter that matters. So you're doing space. And I love the, the recent podcast on Invest Like the Best, kind of the, the ecosystem that's building around their defense, like things that are capital intensive. And yet you also see you're going into a cycle. Capital is going to get scarcer, more expensive. And I'm, you know, like you just said, you kind of have to get to turning over these cards. But there's something that, that Lux, I think, has done really well, which is setting up these de novo companies, right? And like taking very early some capital, a person, and an idea. I'm like, wow, this is a really good idea. You started a really low cost basis. Why doesn't everybody do this? So I wanted to ask you, like, what is the secret? Why doesn't everybody do that or do it successfully? It's, it's hard. It's hard. It takes a lot of money. It takes a lot of time. It's much easier when, you know, everybody's talking about some SaaS company or some area where there's, you know, 20 competitors and, you have social proof already from one or more dominant investors in the venture world that have funded something like that. And you do an adjacent one. Yes, probably the market's big enough for a bunch of those. And and you can get data if the thing is working because maybe it's a software-driven thing in the next three months or six months. You can see if cohort is buying, if you know it's got uptick. Uh, and so it's just easier. But as the cliched quote goes, you know, go out on a limb because that's where the fruit is. We like to go where there are less competitive, less... Um, uh, populated areas. And so um, I, I, when we do these new codes, it starts with a survey of like, what is everybody else doing? What does everybody else believe? And then I'm trying to find the white space. I'm trying to find just like an animal hunting in an ecosystem. You know, mm-hmm. you, you could go where, you know, there's a fresh kill and everybody else is going, or you could take the risk, which is a risk and go out and try to find your own bounty. And so that is my preference um, rather than trying to join the scrum to find something that other people aren't doing. And we've done this very consistently across so many different sectors. And I, I never know where the next sector is going to come from. So when the world was going crazy about clean tech and green tech and alternative energy, you had John Doerr and Vinod Kosal and very famous VCs who were all promoting this, writing op-eds about it, galvanizing people to fund these things. What was totally absent, the white space, the sort of curious incident of the dog in the night, you know, in the, in the uh, yeah. Charlotte Holmes parlance. The, the thing that wasn't being spoken of at all was nuclear. So I got very interested in nuclear. We looked at every part of the fuel cycle, uranium miners, modular reactors. Uh, and I decided that the biggest unsolved problem, and this is true of pretty much every industry, is like what sucks. And you turn your turret mm-hmm. of attention to the thing that sucks. And the thing that sucked was what do you do with the waste? And there was a market for commercial waste and a market for defense waste, cleaning up pre and post Cold War bomb processing, which many people, including us at the time, didn't know, which is another trick that we use, which is when we come across some nugget of information that reduces our ignorance. Mm-hmm. We have this response of, wait, what? Where we just learn something? And if you think about Lux being poetic here for a moment, Lux itself is Latin for light. And I always say that it's shining a spotlight on what's known, but at the edge of that circumference of the spotlight is darkness. And that's all what's unknown. And as it grows, mm-hmm. as that spotlight grows of what we know, so too does the knowledge of what we don't know, of, of what's missing from our knowledge. So it's the same thing. It's like everybody else is focused over here. What's the thing that has not been illuminated? And then when we experienced that, wait, what moment? Like for in this case with nuclear, it was, my God, 25% of the Department of Energy's budget, $25 billion a year, six of it is spent on nuclear waste cleanup. We're like, wait, what? And then when you talk to other people, you want to then confirm that your ignorance is not silo just to you, that other people also don't know that. 
Mm-hmm. And then you're like, okay, we found a secret, right? We found something that is asymmetrically known by us. So let's go do something about that. And so we've done that repeatedly. We've done it in nuclear waste, in robotic surgery, in cutting edge microscopes to be able to see inside of cells in biology, in brain machine interfaces, in finding real life X-Men, you know, mutants that mm-hmm. are all yeah. over the globe with crazy genetic properties. Um, and, uh, and now most recently, my probably decade plus long obsession to digitize our sense of smell, the one last sense that computers don't really have. Um, so, you know, those are all new codes. Other people don't do it because it's hard. It's hard, particularly if it's coming from a university to have the mu- muscle memory and the know-how, which we learned from a wonderful guy, Larry Bach, who's passed away many years ago, but was a mentor to us. Uh, he was, as people called him, a mensch on a mission. He started in biotech, went into semiconductors and electronics and touched pretty much everything. But he would find the principal investigator, the PI at the university, the scientist. He would go to the university, negotiate with tech transfer, give them a royalty, equity, mm-hmm. license, structure the deal, serve as the founding CEO, recruit the first 10, 12 people, recruit the board, recruit the advisors, put together the syndicate. And I just love that. That was you know, a true zero to one company creation thing. And mm-hmm. so we do a few of those every year in a whole wide array of, of um of uh, sectors and and I hope we get to do it, you know, for the next 40, 50 years. Can't be more excited to, uh, to learn about the smell when it, uh, when it, when it gets announced. Um, I, I have a crazy story about that, by the way, which is, okay. it's coming out of a big tech company and, okay. um, and I'm spinning this division out and um, we're doing a $55 million series A and we're doing 20 of it. And while I'm negotiating with the, the key guy behind this, uh, I had gone two and a half years without getting COVID. Uh, I evaded it, right? I felt like that that meme picture that you may have seen Sense. from <laughs> from uh, the uh, Walking Dead, you know, the last five people fighting off the zombies. <laughs> and and I had come from a board meeting in San Francisco for this crazy cutting edge microscope company. And I land in New York and um, I, I go to the gym in our apartment building, come back up. Normally when I'm finished working out, I stink. And for whatever reason, I'm like, ah, oh, I don't smell. Interesting. Go upstairs. Ooh take a shower, you know, oh, don't yeah. smell the shampoo or soap. And I'm like, yeah. oh, God. And uh, test positive, boom. Now, yeah. my only symptom for an indeterminate and anxiety producing two weeks was loss of smell. Mm-hmm. And so I am negotiating for a historic technology that mankind has never really had to be able to have a Shazam for smell, you know, basically a, a digital nice. detection of, of, of what a molecule is and what odor it is. And, and mm-hmm. inversely, from a molecule, predict what it should smell like while I've lost my actual sense of smell. <laughs> so it, it, there was nothing more poetic than that moment. I love it. That's a, th- this also, this goes to something else that I, um, that you've talked about, right? Um, I feel like every time you make a new investment, you have a pretty, like a, a, a brief synopsis that's kind of captures everything, but also tells a really interesting story about why this isn't a really interesting investment. And yet you said that you grew up and you were not a good storyteller. You said you were horrible. Terrible. And, and you had to learn it some, and that's clearly changed, I think. And nuclear is another example, right? You're, you've made the point of rebranding uh, nuclear power into elemental power and, and sort of communication is a big um, aspect of what you're doing and a big strength of yours. So I'm curious, how did you go about changing that? Did you study storytellers? Did you learn from anybody? Like, how did you, did you just read a lot? It started with negative feedback mm-hmm. um, where friends would literally tell me, uh, and I would eventually observe from my mom, who was very long with this storyteller. I love her and she's amazing, but she was just not a good storyteller. And so I probably learned how to tell stories from her. Uh, and it's interesting because my middle child, uh, she's uh, brilliant and amazing, but is like, and then I went here and then this, and then like the level of these, I'm like, okay, come on. Like, and, and I tell her the same thing that a friend used to tell me 
back in like high school, college time, which was like beginning, middle, end, you know, make a point. And so I'd be like, yeah, 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 you know, whatever. And I talk fast. And, and at the time, I also didn't speak as articulately as some say I do now, where I was like, um, uh, well, yeah, uh, you know. And, and so part of it was looking at other people and admiring how they spoke and seeing that they were effective and that they can make a point. And I tried reading books about writing, but those never really stuck with me. I love the cadence and the speech of Steven Pinker. To watch mm -hmm. him speak or to watch Christopher Hitchens speak or to watch Dawkins speak. Now, of course, you know, they're sort of all birds of a feather of, you know, this sort right. of new atheist. But there were no ums. There were no uhs. They spoke in paragraphs. They, they spoke with uh, Victorian English flourishes. Around the same time, I had started watching Deadwood. And I don't really like Westerns. But my mm. gosh, the language of David Milch, uh, the Shakespearean juxtaposition with, you know, these horrible street gutter word curses. It was just such beautiful language. And, and so I just, quotes I love, you know, whether it was reading Buffett letters, which of course, you know, written or co-written with Carol Loomis, fortune mm. writer. Um, I, I started reading great letters of investors and they the best ones were that same phenomenon, right? Just like an amazing basketball player, there was excellence exuded in the way that people spoke or the way that they wrote. And, and I wanted to be celebrated in the same way that I celebrated, you know, many of these people. And so I just, it was repetition. Um, I would mm. write uh, with Forbes. I would write every week a newsletter. Uh, it wasn't very good at start. It got better. I developed a voice. Um, there were little verbal tactics like, alliteration that I picked up or stole or copied from George Gilder. Uh, there was a series of books written by a guy, Ward Farnsworth, who sounds like, I'd actually love to meet him someday. I don't know what he looks like, but he sounds like the waspiest name in the world. <laughs> but well, the first book I came across was called The Predator at the Chessboard. So, you know, it was very interesting. It was sort of like a uh, chess strategy. And I think it was only online, but it was beautifully written. And then he wrote another book called like The Legal Toolkit or The Analyst Toolkit or The Legal Analyst or something. It was basically about law, but it was very savvy and how to, and I wasn't really interested in law, but, but I, but he made me interested in it. And then he wrote classic English rhetoric, which sounds utterly boring, but every chapter was a exposition of the different techniques of speaking like chiasmus, you know, things like it looked good from far, but it was far from good. And these mm -hmm. play on words. And so I just studied that through repetition and you hearken back and you hear, you know, even the great. Greeks and Romans and Stoics, like they learned oratory and rhetoric. And, and if you take a technological view of this, which is language is a form of code, just like mm. law is a form of code, and just like code and software can influence and program machines. Well, I am influenced by language. I'm influenced by a beautiful quote. I'm influenced by a great scene of dialogue. And so I just wanted to be better at that. And it's, it's something that, you know, obviously... Like I had a thick Brooklyn accent when I was growing up. I lost that over time. Um, you know, I still have ums and you knows, but. You don't miss it, the accent? It, 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 it's funny because my wife is from Merrick and I'm from Coney Island and it both, they both come out on occasion, you know, but, um, and we'll laugh at each other, but like, you know, there's a, there's a few like, uh, come on, we got to walk, you know, and, and, right. and uh, no, no, yeah. I, uh, I mean, I, I, lost most of my accent and sometimes i'm like well it does give you character like there's the arnold schwarzenegger just like own it right thing but right. uh um i'm curious right so a lot of firms that are built now people 
don't see each other right like everybody's distributed and and i this is going to be okay this is going to be go go around a corner you once mentioned that you studied every venture capitalist that you you know whose story you could find and you found mostly path dependency and um and that you couldn't really directly model their success um however i'm sure there must have been it must have influenced you in the way you thought about building an enduring partnership and a culture and Lux, especially, I think early on already had sort of um, offices on both coasts, right? So you, I, I feel like you were a little bit distributed before it was, you know, on vogue for everybody to work from home and to run into, frankly, cultural issues as they scale up a business. So I'm curious if you have any um, thoughts on on that and especially as it relates to building business that's very dependent on kind of your, your team, right? And on the people and how they function together. It's a great question. Um, Peter and I spent a lot of time thinking about this. We, we have gotten it wrong a lot. We don't always get it right. We try to improve. Um, the first comment you made about having studied other venture firms, uh, and I think this is true of biographies too, like every, everybody's path is so idiosyncratic. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody's projectile has a different slope. There are some people, you know, that are fast and high and some people that are long and, you know, and far, and it just takes time and, and so, but, but they're not replicable. The conditions are not replicable. The circumstances mm-hmm. are not replicable. The people are not replicable. The market environment of time are not replicable. And so they can inform, but they're very hard to copy. It's easier in my view. And this is something where I disagree with Peter Thiel. He likes to study successes and I like to study failures. And I think mm-hmm. that failures are more reputable, are, are, more, are more repeatable where you can see errors that are made over and over and again, that end up with the same bad outcome. Uh, where success, I think, has much more luck in it. Um, failure has a lot of luck involved, bad luck. But um, but I think that there's more agency in like really bad decision-making that is just, there's way more examples by definition than there are great examples of great decision-makers, although there, of course, are many. Um, one of the things that we studied was why firms split. And one of them was geographic mm-hmm. and one of them was sector. So within geographies, you had an East Coast firm and a West Coast firm they were separated by offices. They had different cultures. They had a different cadence. You know, a New York firm might be walking around the city. A West Coast firm is driving between meetings. They might be in the office together less frequently. Mm-hmm. There might be a bias towards semiconductors or software and one and life science or biotech or healthcare because of proximity to hospital systems and the other. And so what we decided was that we were going to be unum lux, one lux. And that came itself from a letter that Bill Conway at Carlisle had written to Carlisle in the early days, which was one Carlisle. And, and so we just added a Latin flavor to it and called it Unum Lux. But we said, like, this is a logical thing. You should be one firm. There's not Lux East and Lux West. There's not going to be an East Coast and a West Coast. And by design, we're going to thread um, some real connective tissue so that East Coast partners who live in New York are going to be on West Coast boards. And West Coast partners who live in Menlo Park are going to be on Boston and Texas and East Coast boards. Uh, so that we we don't get siloed in a geography mm-hmm. and we don't get siloed so that you don't get a coup, which is what happened at firms like Greylock and Matrix, Matrix and Venrock and others where one partner and one firm basically became the dominant player and then said, okay, like we're shutting down that other office. And so, so that was number one. The second thing was avoiding sector silos. So everybody here is a generalist. Of course, people have passion projects mm-hmm. and it makes logical sense with the institutional knowledge that a single person might have having gained experience in a sector like biotech or drones or defense or uh, electronic warfare or um, systems biology or whatever, that the incremental investment we see in that should go to them. And we put two people on every company so that one, there's redundancy, but two, that we don't get an internal dynamic where people are pointing fingers and saying, oh, 
your deals are failing and mine are doing great. You know, mm. I always knew this biotech stuff was crap or you're like, your, your tech stuff's out of favor. And so at any given point, some sector might be more, uh, have might more, t- have more tailwind behind it. Uh, but we wanted to avoid the fracturing that comes from siloed groups where people are like, okay, we're spinning out as the biotech group or something like that. Mm. And so Pete and I are responsible for the overall allocation of where we're spending our time and resources and attention to money and people. Uh, but we have lots of non-overlapping people focused on different sectors. The last thing I would say, and this was going into COVID, was Scott Besson, who mm. now runs Keysquare, but was CIO at Soros and mm. really responsible with Drucker Miller and George for breaking the pound, you know, their early 90s. Yeah. And uh, he became a friend. Uh, we had originally met through Jim Chanos through a short sellers crew that Jim had put together. And I just, Scott is just, a, I think, a beautiful human and great mind and great intellect. And and we were talking about, you know, culture and he was talking about the culture at Soros and you share this book. And I don't think either of us really cared about management books that much, but there was this um, principle from this book, which was uh, tribal leadership. And it was a book that was mentioned in, um, forgive me here because I'm going to get my sports thing wrong, but uh, Phil Jackson, I think it was 11 rings uh, about, you know, winning with the Lakers and the Knicks yeah. and, uh, or the Bulls rather, sorry. <laughs> and, uh, and, and the, basic idea of tribal leadership was that there's five kinds of tribes. The first is dominated by like everyday people that their life legitimately is observably and objectively miserable. And maybe that's like 2% of the population on a bell curve. And those are people that might be homeless or in jail, but their mantra is life sucks. The next rung up from that is people who feel victims and they're like, my life sucks. These are maybe the masses. They're 20, 30% of people. They show up for a job, nine leave at five, go home, crack a beer, or just like shop online or do whatever. But like they have no institutional loyalty, no sense of meaning, no sense of purpose. And it's unfortunate, it's tragic, but they're like, my life sucks. And they feel like a victim. And, and there's no agency to propel themselves with any sort of conditional optimism, let alone complacent optimism. The next one is internal and it's prevalent in many partnerships, many small VC firms, small hedge funds, small law firms, but any sort of boutique group where there's zero sum resources and, um, and high visibility of people. Uh, and, and it's, I'm great. You're not. Mm-hmm. And, and that was the transformation that I think Phil Jackson had to do when he had high ego people like Kobe and Shaq on the same team, which was how do you transform a culture that has a bunch of people that are, I'm great. You're not fighting for status, fighting for bonus, fighting for money, fighting for claim, um, fighting for recognition, fighting for dominance and influence within the group to we're great. They're not. Mm-hmm. And there you need an external enemy. And I believe that that's true, whether it's here at Lux. Sometimes our competition might be another firm. It might be a partner in another firm, but we are most galvanized and unified when we have some common third enemy. Countries through history have the same phenomenon. I mean, growing up in the 80s, it was, you know, US versus Russia, communism. Uh, I think that we would be well served to have a common third enemy. And my, you know, candidate for that is not China, but the CCP uh, to, to, to galvanize us as a country. Uh, the, the next one after that is uh, from, you know, life sucks, my life sucks, I'm great, you're not, we're great, they're not, is life is great. And life is great is hard to tell if it's because the culture is so good that money is flowing in or because money's flowing in that the culture is great. I increasingly yeah. think that it's the latter. Like when you look at the early Google culture or the early Facebook culture, you know, it was that. You were part of this mission, money was great, and you're like, life is great. And then as that starts to sour, you go down the rungs, you know, from life is great to we're great, they're not, to I'm great, you're not, to life sucks. And so that's, that's the main cultural thing. And I find, coming full circle to your question, that being together physically, being a social primate, 
being with other people, reading their body language, having meals together, being able to have the quick side conversation without the linearity that happens on a conference call or a Zoom where it's awkward to like, you know, take a break and then come back. Like, oh, you know, that thing I was, you know, just talking about, like right before we started, uh, my GC was talking about some legal case on some topic and, and he was just thinking about it. And like, he, he would have been like, oh, can we schedule a Zoom? Can we talk for mm. five minutes? So I'm able to talk to him for 30 seconds, right? Yeah. And then I'm able to bump it to somebody else. And, and I have a guest and I can bring that guest in and they can meet with one of the other partners in passing in the ser- moment of serendipity. So I just feel like presence is really important for the, you know, sustenance and sustainability of a culture. And like any system, things fall apart. Entropy is the norm. Uh, and you need to put in energy into a system to prevent entropy. And that's true of human relationships. Hmm. I, I love that. I, I think it's, we've gone far in the other direction. And personally, I love being in an office and just being, having this, the serendipity also of just bumping into people and just being able to, to socialize ideas and also learn by osmosis, which um, is, is much harder if you're, if you're remote. I wanted to ask you one question that I, I haven't heard anybody ask you, and I'm not sure, um, how, you know, about personal finance, right? You you did this tweet and like husband your personal cash, don't overspend, have credit. And it's sort of this feeling like we've been in 10, a lot of us have been absent COVID in 10, 10 really good years, right? And so people are used to not a recession, but things being very good. Your own exposure is to illiquid, early stage, fairly risky equities, right? So I'm curious how you think about, you know, kind of your own personal finances going through a cycle. Like, are there any are you just comfortable with the risk? Are there, you know, do you barbell in your, like, how do you approach that topic? Um, well, uh, the vast majority of my personal money is invested in locks. And, uh, you know, we eat our own cooking. Uh, if there are things that are outside of locks on the private high speculative side where there are things that locks would never do, uh, you know, the partners may invest personally in some of those things. And so I, I have investments in that mostly around people who I like, admire, trust, um, you know, and just want to bet on, um, philanthropy for me, there's a handful of things, uh, Coney Island prep having grown up there, but believing that, you know, kids sometimes lost that John Rawlsian Ovarian lottery, Buffett called it and were born into not great circumstances, but, you know, need the right people to believe in them before others understand that, you know, they have the opportunity for greatness. So, so um, the charter school movement on ed reform has been a, a big personal push and allocation of personal capital. Santa Fe Institute, where I just feel thrilled and lucky to be part of it as a trustee. It's a smorgasbord of Renaissance thinkers um, and a variety of other things. Um, and then Lauren, my wife, runs a $3 billion activist hedge fund. Mm. And so you can think of it within the family as I do high speculative privates and illiquid, and she does liquid, um, you know, sort of deep value investments. Yeah in a more concentrated way. And her and her partner, Christian Asmar, they're really incredible, super smart, great balance, very similar, you know, Peter and I sort of different dispositions and so too they, but a wonderful partnership and have built a, a great firm. Um, my kids actually teased that it took me a lot longer for Lux to get to 4 billion, whereas, you know, it took Lauren shorter period to get to 3 billion. So they, they, they want to work for mom, not dad, but, uh, That's hilarious. uh, and then, and then when Lauren allows me, and I, I say that seriously, both for compliance, but also because, um, I think, a lot of my speculative views, um, uh, you know, I, I have like an itch I want to scratch. And so it mm-hmm. could be, you know, long dated puts on Tesla. It could mm-hmm. be being long Twitter in this current merger arm moment. Um, things that don't affect either Lauren's firm or my firm. And, you know, we're able to do something sort of speculatively. Those, are, those tend to be very small kinds of things. 
Um, there's real estate, uh, and you know, then there's things that we do for our family and and you know, parents and extended folks and and uh, but otherwise, I'd say we're relatively conservative. You know, we we are not. Uh, I don't care about boats or cars or watches or sort of main material possessions. I I like um, you know vacation indulgence and and uh, we invest a lot in our kids' educations and and uh, you know it's pretty plain vanilla. So um, I I really value time and moments and memories and experiences and wherever money can help to create that. That's what we invest in. Uh, but most material things, um, I mean, Laura will give me crap because, you know, I pretty much wear the same thing almost every day and, and I don't spend a lot on a t-shirt, but I spend a little on a lot of t-shirts. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I buy the same, you know, 20, uh, t-shirts that are like 30 bucks each or something, but I've never spent like 500 bucks on a t-shirt. So. Did not take the t-shirts for it to be a major line item, but yeah, still, exactly. everybody right. has their own, their own budget. Or, or like, you know, like my, my van, like I have like, you know, probably 20 pairs of these vans and Lauren's like, you know, can, can you get it like two, you know? Is that because you're trying, is that part of the like minimizing decisions that, that drain your, I, I don't know if you subscribe to well, that. I, I do subscribe to that because I don't spend a lot of time on that. But for me, I believe it would be fair without being too armchair psychologist to say that my for a variety of personal experiences in my life, that my fear of loss mm-hmm. of little things makes me hedge. And I'm like, yeah, why, why wouldn't we just, you know, have extra pairs? And, and I do go to excess in that where I'm like, yeah, like, why would I not have 10 extra shoes? Like, I love that shoe. Right. And, and what if they don't make it anymore? And what if I spill coffee on it? Or what if I lose it? And so, so I tend to have backups for things. And since my kids were little, they've been indoctrinated with this idea that it's better to have it and not need it than to need it and not have it. And that's true of an umbrella. And it's true of, you know, the extra mask when you're going to school yeah. for COVID yeah. stuff. Or, and so I think that's a little bit of my mindset of, you know, failure comes from a failure to imagine failure and think mm-hmm. of what could go wrong. And I'd rather just have a backup and it gives me peace of mind. And so uh, for some people, it seems a little bit of minor excess, but in aggregate, you know, it's, it's not so bad and it makes me happy. Speaking of, of happiness, I, I talked to a lot of friends about like, it, once you go into a bear market, right, it's easy. You sort of, you get into this grind and the drug Miller talked about how important it was for him to have the sabbatical in like 2000, like step away from the marketing, come back. I'm curious, you, you just went on a vacation you're married to somebody who manages a hedge fund. So both of you, there's, there's a lot of, lot of stuff going on. How, how do you think about taking a vacation? Are you able to completely detach or is it a, you know, do you go back and forth? Like, how does that work for you? And how, how do you think about the need for rest or, or just breaks? How, how do you balance the work schedule with? There, you know? there are punctuated periods where I feel utterly overwhelmed and, um, you know, and I, I do feel lucky. I have a great partner and we're able to check in with each other and be like, do you need me to listen or do you need me to help solve your problem? Mm. Which is a really important thing because sometimes people don't um, ask that. And sometimes I just want Lauren to listen. I'm more sensitive than her. Um, and uh, sometimes I just want her to listen to me complain or feel frustrated or whatever. And sometimes I'm like, what do I do here? And she's got amazing outside objective advice. So, so part of that is like the psychological piece of it where at times I feel like I need a break. There's times where I feel overwhelmed where I have, um, my days are very heavily scheduled and there's moments where I'm mad at myself that I allowed that to happen. But at the same time, I have that mindset of like, I get to meet all these amazing people 
mm. uh, or somebody that I don't know, but maybe they're going to give me some insight or they're going to be connected to somebody. And so that is sort of randomness and optionality, which I've always done for my life, lead me to over-index towards that kind of stuff. But I have between 12 and 14 meetings a day. Um, and then I have board meetings and, um, and, uh, and so it's a lot. Um, and, and there are times where then I haven't left the margin of safety for some exogenous shock where, you know, I have some crisis in some portfolio company or there's some internal team drama or something. And then I just have to like, you know, blow up my schedule. And, um, and then it, it, anyway, so, so, so that gives me moments where I'm like, I need a break, but, um, but, but what I'm really saying there is like, I wish all these things that I don't have control over, I had control over and were going exactly as I want Mm -hmm. them. And so it's not like taking a break is going to help there. Now I, there's, there's one activity, um, at home and, and one activity, uh, alone that gives me great pleasure. Um, being with my kids is just like the great salve. And so kids can be extremely stressful because they're, that's at times the epitome of somebody who doesn't want to do what you want them to do and you have no control, but it's just, I, it, mostly because of the absence of it in my own life of just not having a nuclear family and not having a present father. It made me want to be a very present father, have a big nuclear family. And, um, I love my kids dearly and they're my main priority. And so, so family stuff for me is, is very cathartic and whatever is going on. Like I could be negotiating, you know, big $150 million financing. And then like my little guy who's six is like, dad, I can't get the screw into this thing. And like, that is more important, you know, getting the screw into the, <laughs> the little toy is more important in that moment. And so, um, yeah, that, that to me is a big thing. Um, Vacation, we're both working like most of the time, you know, Lauren, you know, Bloomberg's portable, so public markets. Um, it's, it, it's rare that like I shut down um, and co-running a firm, uh, you know, people are in different time zones and we have an expectation that on the one hand, family comes first and you should never miss a child's recital or anything like that. But on the other hand, you know, you should be responsive to your CEOs and your CEOs are in constant need. And it's not like, you know, a market where it's nine to four or whatever, nine thirty to four, and right. somebody might need to talk to you at midnight. And so, so we we balance that kind of stuff. But but the, the the second thing that gives me great pleasure, and usually I'm a very competitive sports guy. I like I love basketball. I can't stand golf. Um, you know, I just find like those kinds of sports boring and against my personal identity. But surfing is the one thing, and I'm not a great surfer, but it's the one thing where I am totally present. I'm not thinking with anxiety about the future. Mm. I'm not thinking with, you know, depression or concern or regret about the past. It's just like, don't die. <laughs> don't drown. Flow and, and, and so I, I, I enjoy pockets of solitude out on the water. And um, I find that the combination of exhaustion and the present mindset out of necessity of not dying or drowning uh, leaves me really well equipped to then come back and whatever stressor I might've faced earlier being highly caffeinated and like, you know, high twitch, suddenly I'm like, okay, like we'll deal with this, whatever it is. Awesome. I love this. The, honestly, this, this was fantastic. I, and I do want you to have, I don't want to go overboard, so I'm going to let you go. I, I hope, I mean, I love this. I thought this was, I, I don't know how you feel about it, but I just, this was awesome. I thought yeah, was no, fantastic. look, I mean, you know, we, we re- originally met, right? Because I deeply admired, like you, you were exuding excellence. You were going deep into like literally like the library and unsourcing these old articles and like highlighting them. And it was, you were a student and you were curious. And so I admire that. Um, I'm glad we got to like meet and, you know, you were sort of unveiled, you know, and, and be behind the anonymity. Uh, and so I admire what you do and what you're building. And so, yeah. Appreciate it. Yeah. I think, 
I don't know if, if Alix made the, the formal intro at, at the time. But, I think he uh, did. I think he did. Yeah, he's, he's a great he connector and good, yes. good human. Yes. I, I some, of, some of the stuff I, I pick up, I was like, people, so important. Like, just get it in your head. Um, again, thanks. I'll, I'll let you go. I, great to be with you. I'll see you, yeah, I'll see you live think, hopefully soon. Yeah, I love that. All right, Josh. All right, man. Take care. And Bye-bye. Thanks, thanks for this. Thanks.